you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. The AI race may have crowned its official winner. Shares of Microsoft surging to a new record today, even as questions swirl over the future of open AI. So has it claimed the top spot against chief rival Alphabet? And who else could compete for this title? Plus, heartburn. A couple of big pharma stocks take a tumble after disappointing results for an experimental cardiovascular drug. We'll get a pulse check on the industry and find out where it goes from here. And later, Bitcoin prices have already more than doubled this year and are trading at around 18-month highs. But one expert thinks the crypto rally is only just getting started. We've got a very special guest on the desk to lay out his case. Tanned, rested, ready for a comeback. That's a hint. The big reveal just minutes away. I'm Melissa Lee coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. And we start off with the stock that might have just established itself as the undisputed king of the AI realm. Microsoft shares climbing more than 2% to close at a record high. It added $56 billion in market cap today and is now less than 7% away from breaking the $3 trillion mark. The latest move coming after Microsoft hired former OpenAI CEO Sam Altman to lead its new AI team. Hundreds of OpenAI employees are threatening to follow him if the board that fired Altman on Friday does not resign. But at least one company isn't willing to give up the battle so easily. Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff this afternoon offering to match salary and stock compensation for any OpenAI researcher that joins his company instead. So what does this all mean for the battle for AI dominance? There's so many angles to go through. Guy, what's your take? Well, the market's saying Microsoft is the undisputed winner right now. And listen, again, Tim has said it. I think we've all said it collectively over the years. Microsoft is one of the five to seven most important companies in the world. I mean, seemingly everything they do touches our daily lives consistently throughout the day. The question is, though, what's the right valuation for this company? $13 next year means it trades close to 30 times forward EPS, that's not cheap in this environment. Now, maybe they're deserving of that, and maybe this now, I guess, pole position they have in AI sort of gives them that sort of leeway to have that type of valuation. I just think it's getting itself a little bit rich here. Karen? Yeah, I agree with you, although this does seem to be kind of a big deal, right? Even though I can't even, I can't even understand what happened at AI. I can't understand no. the structure. I can't understand the board made of four people. I don't know how you vote on anything affirmatively with four. An even number. An even number. Right. Um, so, I mean, what a coup to get him. I think that we might not have seen the end of the AI story, although every hour that goes by that we don't see it resolved with him back there means he's more likely to stay at Microsoft. So I don't see I, at the moment that's the place you got to be. And I think they will be able to hire whatever talent they want. That's a big advantage. Yeah. Although, I mean, with Benioff, that really underscores the sort of up for grabs in terms of talent. I mean, this is a talent sort of area, and you're only as good as your talent. All those engineers, the d- developers, et cetera, they're all out there now, ready to be hired, theoretically. I, I think the stakes went higher today. Yeah. I mean, I think, and I think that's kind of what you're asking us. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the development, both the, what the impact on Microsoft stock is, who looks like they've, they've kind of out of this uh, a thorny situation in the catbird seat, although, again, there's probably a lot to the story that we still need to hear and what kind of controls might, in fact, be uh, over, obviously, key management. But I, I, I just, you know, I look at Microsoft, um, which has added almost a trillion dollars in market cap since this deal was first announced, right? And, and if you look at where the street is in terms of where they are projecting revenue growth, first of all, um, 15 to 16 percent, I think, is roughly where the street has Microsoft growing over the next three years. Pretty decent, solid numbers, um, especially for a company that's going to generate close to $300 billion in, in revenue. Um, but what's the multiple you're going to pay? Based upon the reaction, though, based upon the feeding frenzy and based upon the view that at least they are so far ahead and it's a world. And this is a, a quote that was in the journal. And I think they were quoting uh, someone from from Stiefel. The point is that Microsoft hasn't been in in the lead or ahead of the trend in 20 years, in two decades or so. You know, some could be critical. Uh, that's very debatable. But the point is they are ahead. They're very ahead. And, and that's part of what I think was underscored. Yeah, I'll just say this. At some point next year, uh, Microsoft's going to overtake Apple in market cap terms and they'll never look back. 
So I, I, I'm telling you, Microsoft will like be the new Apple from here on out. And I don't mean that it's going straight to $4 trillion once it gets over $3 trillion. At some point, I think all these stocks are likely to take a bit of a breather and, and, and again, digesting all this sort of stuff. Clearly a beneficiary if they're able to get dozens and dozens of the most important um, you know, uh, people uh, from OpenAI. That being said, this relationship that they had with OpenAI is really important for all of those um, you know, projections that they gave. I think their CFO said a few months ago, this is going to be the quickest business that they ever have till $10 billion in revenue. If OpenAI implodes, they're going to lose a really important cloud customer. They're going to, you know, they're going to lose a lot of the, the sort of activity that was existing on their cloud platform that helped them achieve better than expected growth in this last quarter. They just announced 29% versus 26%, um, you know, projected. So again, I, I don't think it's a, like a layup from here on out that it's all coming up roses for Microsoft, but I do believe in the intermediate to longer term this does to Tim what he just said. All that being said, I mean, what happens with Anthropic? Microsoft, or excuse me, uh, Apple and Amazon or Google and Amazon have been tripping over each other to kind of invest in that company. They're all ex-OpenAI people. Does Alphabet make a bid for them? Does Amazon make a bid for them? If you thought OpenAI was expensive trading at 80 times sales, let me tell you, Anthropic's a bit more expensive and the like here. So I think this is kind of like the first inning of what's going on here, but it feels like OpenAI is toast. It's, it's kind of over. Like, like, you know, they have GPT-4, and now Microsoft is probably, what, six to nine to 12 months away from having something that's maybe as good as that. Um, and then, you know, from here on out, I, I think but it's doesn't probably... That, doesn't, that, t- doesn't this tell you just how big all this is? And again, yeah. we've got NVIDIA tomorrow, and, and, you know, they seem to be uh, the one that's serving the computing needs of, of this world. And, and it was hard to believe that you could have felt that there was more still to price into AI uh, until this soap opera over the last 48 hours. I mean, it, it's fascinating. Or doesn't this show you that the sands can quickly change. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Thursday, we thought OpenAI was like the golden goose, and Microsoft now basically owns the biggest assets for that. But how about Anthropic or Cohere? I mean, what if, what if Google, what if Alphabet decides, oh, well, we can hire the, the top people there? All of this can change just, or, you know. Well, they did, but, you know, put in a significant. Right. Yeah. Okay. Significant. But in terms of, like, bringing, yes. onboarding. Yeah. You know, talent. It, it does seem like a really, you know, very sort of sped up um, talent hunt on steroids. Mm-hmm. But I, I still come out with the open AI destruction. That's so, I can't even understand how that could happen so quickly and with so little governance. But I, so what's left there? I don't know. And what, what happens to all the, I don't know, the VC uh, money that went into that? What, what, is it just, it's gone, I guess, if the valuation doesn't but hang in. But I don't, I, I don't understand the structure, to no, be honest. I agree. You. I'm sorry. And, and I, I just, is it as easy as saying we want to hire away the key people? I don't think you can do that in this world. I mean, I think there's a lot of restrictions upon how quickly, um, you know, control and significant uh, people at, at companies can be hired away and non-competes and things like that. So, I mean, I think we have to take a deep breath and say, I don't think you can just have hired the top three people at the biggest AI firms in the world and suddenly have their business. Uh, and I think those folks know that, too. And, and, and obviously, uh, the comments by Benioff are, are ones that, that really do underscore uh, the bid for talent. That, there's no question about that. Um, but there are superstars and then there are the folks that are really defining and legally mm-hmm. protected from being stolen. All right, let's bring in CNBC's Steve Kovac, who's been following all the twists and turns uh, since the story started to unfold on Friday. Steve, what's next here? Yeah, anyone's guess, Mel. And look, (laughs) anything can happen, whether even Sam Altman joining Microsoft, that's still in question whether or not that's going to happen. So let me give you uh, the lay of the land and the latest of what's going on here. Like you said earlier, hundreds of OpenAI employees are threatening to leave the startup for Microsoft if the board doesn't give in to certain demands. That includes reinstating Sam Altman as CEO. Reminder, Sam Altman might not even be a, a Microsoft employee quite yet. We just don't know because, look, The Verge is reporting this afternoon Altman is trying to go over to OpenAI even after Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella announced this morning Altman will be CEO of a new AI subsidiary at Microsoft. So here's where things stand as of right now. OpenAI is currently running under its third CEO in four days. Already some calls for that CEO to go away. And the very real possibility the original CEO, that's Altman, comes back to keep employees from following him to Microsoft and collapsing OpenAI. This potential exodus employees puts OpenAI's lead in AI at risk and gives Microsoft a chance to develop that technology 
in-house without relying on a volatile startup. So you got two scenarios right here. Microsoft closes the deal and brings Altman in-house along with hundreds of OpenAI's employees. In effect, Microsoft can end up acquiring the hottest tech startup on the planet, reportedly valued at a $90 billion for a song and without any scrutiny from regulators. Or the board caves to the employee demands and Altman comes back. Then they resign and new board members come in to run the shop. If that happens, well, we're going to be on a time machine back to where things stood Thursday. Mel. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Steve, thank right. you uh, for laying that all out for us. Steve Kovac. Our next guest says the latest drama has leveled the playing field and the future of AI is more open than ever before. Let's get more from ARK Invest. Brett Winton, he's a chief futurist at the firm. Um, Brett, was it your view prior to the events that unfolded late last week that OpenAI was out in front? And now that leveling the playing field is essentially, you know, the talent can be redistributed and so other companies can get stronger? Not only redistributed, if, if, you're, if you pause development for six months in AI, given the cost declines, that's like pausing for two years in traditional Moore's law-driven technology. So the shakeup at OpenAI, the, even if they restructure the, the staff into Microsoft, it necessarily uh, blunts the velocity that that organization was achieving. And so it gives the likes of Anthropic uh, an opportunity to catch up to some degree. It, provides an opening for XAI to to catch up to GPT-4. Uh, it even, you know, maybe Google gets its act together and, and begins to ship on the basis of this upheaval. So I think that the, there's a new game board. Uh, every company that was previously designing to open AI's APIs has to kind of reevaluate the stability of that technology stack. Uh, and uh, Meta and its open source models are, are maybe the biggest winner here, where uh, kind of like the underlying compute infrastructure has to be very stable. And, and open source, well-vetted uh, open models actually could become uh, a more dominant force than they otherwise would have been if we hadn't gone through this weekend. As things stand at this moment, Brett, <laughs> with the caveat that things can change at a, at a moment's notice, is Microsoft in the lead? I don't think we. I, I think from an enterprise customer perspective, yes, enterprises love Microsoft. Oh, I'm going to develop to Microsoft. That that's. I'm not going to get fired for doing that. From a startup perspective, actually, this this really depreciates the value of the open AI relationship because startups are not. You know, they, they, it's ironic that the OpenAI board meeting happened on a Google Meets call rather than on Microsoft Office 365. Uh, and uh, and and you know, when we talk to startups, we talk to them on Zoom. Uh, and so I think startups are now looking at Anthropic and, and everyone else. And then the chat GPT asset, the consumer facing asset is is really the, the thing that is in question here. I, I, I think if OpenAI's development gets arrested, it's that asset is not necessarily going to be able to be rebuilt by Microsoft in a robust way. And there's all kinds of companies that could go after that. Uh, XAI uh, under Elon Musk or, or Meta, I think, are well positioned to kind of take advantage of, of that gap in the consumer landscape. Brett, lost in all this seems to be the circumstances surrounding a pretty abrupt firing of Sam Altman. Again, I don't want to speculate as to the reasons why, but does that even matter at this point or is it just sort of out there in the ether and, it, and they'll move on from that? I think there's still reporting to be done as to what exactly occurred. I think you, a, a very like simple analysis is the nonprofit structure eviscerated the company. Uh, if you have a board of directors, none of whom have equity exposure, uh, then uh, and they have a duty that's not to shareholders, they can make this kind of move legally because the the org kind of goes askew of the mission of the nonprofit, and and so it really. Both, both this and FTX show how important, um, you know, governance structures are in organizations. And, you know, certainly as investors and, and particularly on the venture side, we spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, how are founders empowered uh, and how much power do they have to actually make the right hard choices without getting kind of shoved out based upon kind of misalignment, so to speak, in governance structure versus actual ambitions. Hey, Brett, if, if Sam Altman and, and a good part of the team do go to Microsoft or is confirmed that they're there, and let's say OpenAI just, you know, really kind of implodes one way or another, do you think this sets off, um, you know, kind of a wave of M&A in the space possibly? There's a lot of really well-funded, um, you know, startups, a, a big numbers by a lot of these big tech platform companies. Might they look at this and just say, hey, listen, Microsoft has the opportunity to really leapfrog us? 
I'll be curious to see if Sam Altman can deliver the velocity that he was delivering inside OpenAI inside of Microsoft. I mean, the the history of platform transitions in technology, and this is definitely a platform transition, is not one where incumbents win. When we went from the keyboard to the mouse, uh, that's what passed the baton from IBM to Microsoft. And from the mouse to multi-touch, that's what passed the baton from Microsoft to Apple. Uh, and, and we have entered a new stage of user interface and development. And I think it's actually more likely that the, the raft of companies that is worth a trillion plus dollars is not selected from a bunch of incumbent providers who acquire their way in. It's going to be startups like Anthropic with a startup ecosystem building on top of them that become much more valuable because they're able, able to move more nimbly and more agilely to adopt and, and embrace the things that intrinsically make this technology better. Brett, always good to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, this, Justin, in case you missed it on the side of your screen, Satya Nadella uh, will join John Ford later on this hour, 5.45 p.m. Uh, later in this show and Fast Money. So you want to catch that interview. Obviously, there are a lot of questions <laughs> to be answered by uh, Nadella. And this will be his first broadcast interview since uh, all of what has gone on over the past few days. So that'll be interesting. For sure. What would Extraordinary. you ask? Uh, well, I mean, part of it is really understanding, you know, where these key employees are, are you know, the leader of the firm is going to sit. I mean, you know, and, and truly what kind of control will they have? What ability will they have to actually control their fate and not be in the same position at a place like Microsoft? But, um, you know, really understanding the dynamics of the legality of, of this transfer and how they could now be sitting inside of Microsoft. Yeah. And is Sam Altman actually there? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't is see an 8K. Confirmed? They haven't. I don't see they an 8K. They have time, the, right? They have, they have time. time they could, if, if you did it today, they could do it tomorrow. That would be OK. Um, but we haven't. So nothing's signed. Or, well, I guess you, we could know tomorrow instead and of does today. He but he understand the circumstances of Sam Altman's ousting. Exactly. Does Sam public- Altman understand it? Is that what you're saying? No, no, no. no, 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 no publicly traded company, uh-huh. a lot, there's a lot more to answer in terms of the reasoning why, right? You want right. to make sure that your house is clean. That's the so, question. Right. Do, do you feel, have you done your due diligence? You know, again, there's been a lot of speculation out there. Do you feel sufficiently secure enough? with your due diligence to, right. to have everything that the market's talking about come to fruition. Exactly. All right. Uh, coming up, pharma falling flat shares of Bayer having one of their worst days ever after some drug trials come to a screeching halt. And it wasn't the only pharma stock feeling the pain. More on the moves causing investors some big headaches next. Plus, lithium stocks putting the pedal to the metal. How a new president in South America is shaking up the space and the names to keep an eye on. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Reminder, stay tuned to Fast for a first on CNBC interview with Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella. Satya Nadella will be speaking with John Ford later this hour, so stay tuned for that. Meantime, a buzzkill on Bayer, the pharma stock having its worst day in more than 23 years, falling almost 18 percent. Bayer announcing it's halting a trial on a key blood thinner drug due to poor results. The trial focused on patients with atrial fibrillation, which causes irregular heartbeats. The development's also putting pressure on Bristol-Myers Squibb, which has a similar experimental drug in the pipeline. Bayer was under particular pressure just because of its... uh, its own pipeline and drugs losing exclusivity. So 13, this has been in a downtrend for the last decade or so. If you pull up a chart, you'll see what I mean. So, yeah, today it has a huge move on probably seven times normal volume. But this has just been a continuation of a bad story. And in pharma, I mean, 
I don't want to say Tim and Karen's Pfizer because that's just not <laughs> nice. Okay. It's all right. No, but even Bristol they're Myers, for example, things. they're winners and they're losers, right. and this happens to be one of the losers. Yeah, I mean, they had also pulled a lymphoma drug, which had got granted FDA fast track approval, I think, in 2017, but then subsequent trials found that it was not effective. So it's sort of like a series of blemishes here. Uh, for at least for well, this, and, and again, you know, you talk about pipeline. You talk about where my mine, you know, maybe Karen's <laughs> Pfizer um, is yeah. is is the analyst community, the investor community are unable to get excited. Maybe you've put a floor under all the COVID dynamics, but back with Bayer, this was a key pipeline drug, key key pipeline drug. You also look at the underperformance of the European pharma's, and it, it's kind of like the story of you know, just like uh, the tech sector. You see some of the biggest companies underperforming stocks that are major parts of the weights of those indices. You also get you know some sense of why you've seen such major underperformance by the Euro stocks 50 to the S&P. Yeah, this was supposed to be a five and a half billion dollar drug. This one drug at peak sales. Massive. Which would have been massive. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of the Charlie Brown of, uh, right? Um, but it's interesting to me that just the, the pharma space, U.S. pharma space, um, talking about Shim and my uh, <laughs> Pfizer and others, I mean, it's so out of favor right now, except for there's just two, two names you need to be in it's Eli Lilly, Nova Nordisk, that's it. Nothing else really matters. I do have to think that over time that will change, that valuations at some point just get so overdone. Dan's shaking his head. Nope, it will never change. I think it will. No, no. <laughs> no I actually agree. Or were you thinking you. of Elon or something? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, no, I, I actually agree with you. I, to your point about Novo and, uh, and, and Lilly, and the only real story is these GLP-1s. Well, Pfizer, all these guys are testing, like, the orals. And at some point, I just think that, you know, a little of that pixie dust probably works himself into some of these very cheap stocks. Like, I, I would look at a Pfizer and say, why wouldn't you take a shot? I think you have downside to probably the mid-20s, and you could have upside in, in a different environment, um, you know, to 40 bucks or something like that in the, in the next year. So. It's also dance Pfizer now. Yeah. Well, there you go. I'm kicking <laughs> the tires. Spirit, How's that? I, that's not great. I'm on a board. Yeah. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Heavy metal trading. Well, actually, it's the lightest metal, but it's sure rocking. Why Argentina's presidential election is swaying lithium stocks and what it means for the producers. Next. Plus, stocks have been on a tear. But could the Fed throw a wrench into the run we've seen recently? A top economist lays out his take for the new year. Ahead, you're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create. Like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Lithium producers popping today with the stocks most exposed to Argentina seeing strong gains. Moves coming after this weekend's runoff election in that country where libertarian candidate Javier Millet won the presidency. Millet, whose economic plan includes abolishing the country's central bank and dollarizing the economy, is expected to introduce policy to boost commodity exports. Argentina is one of the world's biggest lithium producers, trailing Australia, Chile and China. So what could this new leadership mean for the industry? Um, the major players, also a lot of other industries. I mean, this goes also for its oil industry. Yeah, YPF. All sorts of, yeah, exactly. He wants to sell 51% of the state's oil company. Well, privatization in emerging markets has always historically been a time to, to get on board. And there's been some places where it's been particularly exciting when there's no rule of law or when there's actually, you know, inflationary dynamics, um, you know. And, and, you know, the extreme examples back in the day when Russia basically gave away their entire resource sector um, and loans for shares. But um, in the case of YPF, shares are up 43 percent. You know, it, it's, it's actually a really exciting story. I mean, there, there is an opportunity also. There's some, some question about uh, this was partially even privatized. And there's a couple lawsuits out there already with some very sophisticated Western investors. But but it, all of it brings home the dynamic of where there are assets that are for sale. And Argentina is an incredibly wealthy country in terms, first of all, it's a wealthy country. There's obviously incredible uh, diversity and there's there's an enormous amount of, of uh, poverty based upon how they've run this country. But natural resource wise, in terms of assets, this is you know, one of the more valuable countries in Latin America. 
Yeah. By the way, we're showing you a, a couple full screens. Um, Livent, which is listed on the NYSC, is the number two producer in Argentina of lithium. It's merging with Alchem, which is listed. We showed you a separate chart of Alchem, so that deal is still going to happen. Um, but those two have the most exposure in terms of, of listed companies that uh, U.S. investors probably have most access to. Guy. I thought LAC would have, if you, again, if you had told me all this over the weekend, whereas LAC is going to be up maybe 50 cents, 75, 10 percent. Didn't happen. But... It's going to be interesting to see what the analyst community does on the back of this. Back in October, Deutsche Bank downgraded LIC. They cut their price target from 25 to 7. Does this change the equation? Tim's talked about lithium for a while. This is, not, this is a secular story. This is not going away anytime soon. I think you want to be in these names regardless, and it sounds crazy, but regardless of valuation, there is sort of this like tail risk, we call it, but the tail risk here is to the upside. Coming up, some fast movers catching our eye. Shares of Penn and Macy's both jumping in today's session. The reasons behind these moves and how you should trade the names ahead. But first, top economist David Rosenberg joins us to lay out how the Fed could impact the markets. Big run where he sees stocks heading when Fast Money returns. Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast. We're back right after this. A reminder, stay tuned to Fast Money for a first on CNBC interview with Satya Nadella. He'll be joining John Fort in just about 15 minutes time. So stay tuned for that. Meantime, our next guest says the market is heading for a resolution in the new year, but it might not be the kind that investors are hoping for. Rosenberg Research founder and president David Rosenberg joins us now. David, always good to see you. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks for having me on. So um, you say that for economists and people, investors who are celebrating a soft landing, don't celebrate too soon because you say soft landings don't necessarily end well. Well, because, you know, the, the debate, it's a bit of a false debate uh, about uh, the soft landing because soft landings do exist. They're part of the business cycle. But what they are is they're the bridge or the transition phase from the expansion to the contraction um, so the debate is, are we going to have a soft landing? Uh, but the answer is that we've been in a soft landing all year long. The question becomes, what happens next? And traditionally, the soft landing is the appetizer for the inevitable recession. Uh, so that's really what the story is. I think that the, the theme for 2024 will be that this recession that was delayed is going to be proven next year that it was never derailed. So even though inflation has abated, you think that we are still the soft landing will still be followed by a recession. What what can get us off that path, if anything? Or is it a foregone conclusion in your mind that this is where the cycle is going? I think that it's uh, as much a foregone conclusion as anything can be. I mean, I don't deal in in zeros or hundreds. We're always playing the probabilities. Um, But uh, inflation typically comes down. Uh, I mean, you could have a situation where supply factors help, but principally they come down also because of a weakness in demand. And so keep that in the back of your mind as you're looking at, oh, inflation's been coming down so dramatically, 9% down to almost 3%. Um, But at the same time, what it's telling you is that that big boom in corporate pricing power that we had over the past few years, uh, that's come to an end. So the inflation numbers are a double-edged sword. We're getting lower interest rates out of it. That is true. That's beneficial. But I think what's going to be at stake is, um, you know, the 10% consensus earnings growth estimate for next year. So I think we'd have to sit down and do the math. Uh, how do we get this inflation uh, and at the same time get 10% profit growth unless we have dramatic cost cutting? Because you're not going to be getting 10% profits next year uh, from the revenue side, if inflation con- continues to go down. So, you know, when you talked about the divergences or resolutions that uh, has to be uh, resolved in 2024, one of them will be the double-digit earnings growth that's embedded in the stock market at a time when everybody is praying for lower inflation. Well, lower inflation brings you lower interest rates, that much is true, but it's going to be commensurate with uh, earnings that are going to be disappointing. Hey, David, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us, as always. And you know, I'm looking at your notes, and you're, you're pointing out that tomorrow kind of crowns the end of the quarter and that the Magnificent Seven have reported that they've carried the market, but that we will then have the focus on the consumer and Black Friday. Talk about that. Talk about where you see the consumer is. And, 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 and you know, is it time to start now feeling like they're crumbling? 
Well, I think that, look, the consumer has been uh, breathing fumes for the last 12 to 18 months. And we know the story with excess savings. And we know that uh, either they've been fully exhausted or close to being fully exhausted. So that's been a big help. I mean, the amount of fiscal stimulus this year uh, was, um, uh, you know, a major source of support for the economy at large. That's not going to be repeated next year. So, look, it's really the same old story. Uh, I think it's because, you know, today's investor or, you know, today's market pundit, we were all basically just living day by day. Nobody can see or willing to see past the tip of their nose. Uh, there are built-in lags from what the Fed does in both directions. Uh, we get recoveries because of the lags of much lower rates, and then we get the recession because of the lags of much higher rates. And those lags haven't fully kicked in yet. So I think that uh, we are going to be having a consumer recession. Uh, we're starting to see, by the way, cracks emerge uh, in the labor market. Uh, and that's going to play a role, especially as unemployment rises. That's going to cut into wage growth. Uh, and at the same time, uh, we know that, you know, the mantra is that the household sector has got such great balance sheets because everybody points to the debt to income ratio and how much lower it is today compared to 06 and 07. And I say that that will knock yourself out if that's the benchmark you want to use, which is the most acute credit bubble in modern times. When you actually go back historically, household balance sheets, when you're looking just at debt to income ratios, uh, are harder than they were at any other cyclical peak, you know, outside of 06 and 07. Mm -hmm. and, and you're starting to see that in terms of, uh, you know, delinquency rates are going up, right? Like uh, delinquency rates in the latest uh, New York Fed report going up uh, auto loans, credit cards, but now even residential mortgages from a low level are starting to hook higher, actually the highest they've been since early 2020. So you're starting to see, interestingly enough, even with the unemployment below 4%, mm -hmm. uh, you're starting to see erosion in credit quality. Uh, and so what that means is that the banks are going to continue to tighten up their credit scoring at a time when you're going to be seeing rollovers in the higher rates, the reset of the economy ongoingly in the higher rates. I mean, think about how far the Fed has to go to cut interest rates. The, for the Fed, the Fed could cut interest rates 300 basis points, and mm -hmm. it just takes us to the average of the past five or 10 years. So I think that's one other theme we're going to be talking about next, next year when it comes to reviving the consumer with interest rate cuts. We're going to go back to talking about the famous uh, refrain called pushing on a string. David, thank you very much. I appreciate it. David Rosenberg, thank Rosenberg you. Research. Karen, do you think a recession is a foregone conclusion or as much as one can be? I don't really necessarily. No, I do think, I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, uh, fight with the yes, but I do think a soft landing is possible. And um, I do think that productivity enhancements are probable. Mm -hmm. So that could get you there. Coming up, Bitcoin's rally drums on. Can the cryptocurrency go another leg higher? We'll have a very special guest on set to make the case. You will not want to miss this. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Bitcoin getting a bid in today's session, surging more than 2% at its highs and crossing back above the $37,000 mark. The move coinciding with the election of pro-Bitcoin presidential candidate Javier Miele in Argentina and coming amid reports that the Department of Justice may be near a resolution in its criminal case against Binance, reportedly seeking a settlement of more than $4 billion with the crypto exchange. Bitcoin prices now more than double where they began the year. And our next guest says we're just in the early innings of a new crypto Bull market. Let's welcome a very Brian Kelly. Yes. It's great to be here. Great to be back. What's new, BK? I mean, I, yeah, what's I, new? I, what's new? Yeah, I mean, the audience. Yeah. Here, you know, but you've been you've been operating your Bitcoin fund still. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. Yep. Still um, still involved in Bitcoin every day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, never stops. Um, but it's been um, it's been an interesting year. You know, I mean, in the last year, we've had gone from everything from FTX to now all of a sudden Argentina, potentially, you know, they've elected a pro-Bitcoin president. So the momentum and sentiment has changed dramatically in that market. And then not to mention all the, the potential Bitcoin ETF filings that are still in the wings here. Right. So where do you see, you know, you don't have a price target necessarily on Bitcoin. Yeah. But what are you thinking in terms of so, where you are now? So there's a couple things. We know in the past that Bitcoin has had these two-year cycles that are generally centered around the halvening. And so we have another halvening coming up in April. And I'm not one of those people that thinks the halvening is the actual catalyst. 
but it's one of those sentiment things that all of a sudden now you have a reduction in supply. Couple that with the fact that we have the Federal Reserve that is likely done for some time being of, of raising rates. If not, we don't think they're going to go to 10 percent. Maybe they go to five and a half. Right. And then the second part of that is we now have these ETF filings. So for the first time ever, just like the gold ETF, you're going to have retail investors, not that they couldn't buy it before, but now registered investment advisors. Your Morgan Stanley wealth manager can allocate to this. And so that's what got the market excited about this new ETF. All right, Beeks, you just named a bunch of catalysts for the Bitcoin to keep going higher. What do you think the core is? You know, is it just digital gold, uh, you know, versus like we often hear lots of folks come on and just say they should be allocated to that. You know, we've had the dollar come in and obviously Bitcoin has been trading pretty yeah. well with that. What's the core thesis right now? If you've missed out this run over the last last year and sentiment was really bad a year ago right. at this time and now it's up what 200% or so why should people be allocating low single digits percentage of their investable capital to bitcoin right now so i think the easiest way to think about it is digital gold if you have a portfolio and you've got some of it that you want allocated to gold and let's call that for inflation reasons you're worried about the dollar or whatever your currency is going lower you want to have some kind of hedge against that so you could do gold or you can do Bitcoin. You know, and I would argue that Bitcoin is a better use case than gold because I can't use gold on the Internet. I can use Bitcoin on the Internet. So simply look at it. Bitcoin's a $700 billion market cap right now. All the gold that's ever mined is worth somewhere around seven, eight trillion. So if Bitcoin can take some market share from gold, which I think it's doing, then the multiple return from there. Why couldn't it be 5x from here? Why couldn't it be 10x from here? Um, those are crazy big numbers, but if it starts to make market share, just like any other kind of business would out there, that is what starts driving up the market cap. If inflation reaccelerates, does that throw a monkey wrench into the Bitcoin story? Uh, I, I don't think so. It depends on how, if, if inflation expectations reaccelerate. So what we saw, everybody says, it's, hey, BK, Bitcoin wasn't a great hedge against inflation. And my response to that is, well, you only bought Bitcoin when you needed it. As soon as the Fed said, hey, we're on it and we're going to raise interest rates, I don't need an inflation hedge anymore. So if you start to see inflation picking up and then I would expect Bitcoin to pick up as your hedge, just like I would expect gold. And then we've got this period of time where the Fed's behind the curve and all that. And that's your bull market. So let me ask you, I'm playing devil's advocate because I am long Bitcoin. That's what I do. Also. <laughs> um, so the use case part of Bitcoin never really came to be. And do you dismiss that, that it won't ever come to be? No. I mean, people don't use it to pay for, you know, the idea that, yeah. you know, people that you know, it would be on companies' balance sheets, for example, and people would use it to pay for all kinds of things. That hasn't happened. That's because people want to spend their filthy fiat and they keep their good money. But, but the, the truth is, is that it hasn't happened yet because it hasn't had that adoption yet. We're still early in this, but that's why I think Argentina is kind of really interesting. Earlier, we saw El Salvador switch to kind of a Bitcoin standard, if you will. If Argentina picks that up, they're a bellwether in, in South America. They could be that bellwether for the global south, and that really could pick it up. That's what we need, and I would agree with you. We, it would be great if we could have that. Um, the rally's been going just on an investment thesis, but if we actually used it in countries like Argentina, I think that would really help. Is there proof um, that, uh, that, that the reason why people are not more allocated to Bitcoin is that there is no Bitcoin ETF, when there are other... There are Bitcoin futures, there's Bitcoin, mm -hmm. future, you know, ETFs, ETNs, I should say, ETPs built on futures, mm -hmm. um, other products, basically. How do we know that there's going to be incremental money going into Bitcoin because of Bitcoin ETF as opposed to money being reallocated within Bitcoin? Yeah, so it's a great question. Most of the products that are out there now are difficult for a registered investment advisor to buy or aren't approved by compliance, where an ETF is a more traditional product. If we can, if that, I think, will help. All right, BK, wonderful to see you. Great to be here. Hope you'll come back soon. Come on, clap them in. BK, Brian Kelly. All right, we've got some breaking news here that we want to get to. Our own John Ford is sitting down with Microsoft CT CEO Satya Nadella. John, over to you. Melissa, thank you. Uh, Satya Nadella, thank you for joining us live here, first on CNBC. It's been quite a few days since I was with you in Seattle um, with OpenAI's leadership in turmoil. So first I got to ask, is Sam Altman going to be a Microsoft employee? Yeah, I mean, we are on Friday morning, John, I got up and I was very committed to our, um, you know, customers and confident in our technology roadmap and, um, and really partnered with OpenAI and really partnered with Sam. 
And here, as we speak on Monday, I guess it is today, uh, it's exactly the same place I am, which is I feel that we have all the technology uh, and capability to keep innovating on the products you saw at our Ignite conference last week, uh, up and down the stack from silicon to co-pilots, and, and, and committed to OpenAI and SAM. And that's, you know, with respect to what configuration, you know, obviously, uh, we want Sam and Greg to have a fantastic home if they're not going to be in OpenAI and all the colleagues uh, at Microsoft. Uh, but, you know, I am exactly where I was on Friday morning. Well, you're about the only one. So let me maybe ask it this way. Um, how clear is it to you whether Sam is going back to OpenAI and whether the 700 employees there who seem to be loyal to him are staying at OpenAI or coming to Microsoft? Look, I mean, that is for, you know, OpenAI board and management and the employees to choose. I think at this point for me, I just want, John, in this moment, right, what is it that I care about? I care about just making sure that we can continue to innovate. And I, as I said, I feel very, very confident. Quite frankly, Microsoft has all the capability to just do that on our own. But we chose to explicitly partner with OpenAI, and we want to continue to do so. And so, and obviously, that depends on the people and of OpenAI and staying there or coming to Microsoft. So I'm open to both options. But one thing I will not do is stop innovating. And so, therefore, that's kind of what I will optimize on into making sure that we keep going forward on the roadmap we have, you know, we talked about, and there was so much excitement around. Okay, customers seem to want confidence. I'm sure. Microsoft employees do too. What needs to happen for OpenAI to be stable enough for you and Microsoft's customers to trust it? Can members of the current board stay? Does Microsoft need a seat on the board? Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, I think it's very, very clear that something has to change around the governance. Or, and if that's sort of, you know, and we'll have a good dialogue with their board on that. And uh, and we'll you know, walk through that as time evolves. But the most important thing for me, for customers to know is today, we have all the capability. And this is where I know we love to talk about, uh, you know, here's a way to th the thought experiment. Sam Altman once chose Microsoft, and he chose Microsoft again. Why do you think that is? It is because of the capability of our company to be able to innovate with OpenAI. And so that should speak volumes to why customers can have confidence that come what may, Microsoft will be there, will continue to have the products, and lead in AI. That's, I think, the core message for our customers. Okay, well, one of the things we know is coming is competition. Next week, a AWS is gonna have reInvent. I suspect they're going to say, hey, look, we're stable. You can trust us to have all our employees who are working on AI still here. You've already got Mark Benioff, CEO of Salesforce, trying to hire away OpenAI employees in this turmoil. So how long do you have to get this kind of stabilization that at least your competitors seem to think has you in a vulnerable position? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think you, there are these charts that float around on, if you think about the AI papers, AI innovations, AI researchers, AI people, I think people should just go refresh their memories uh, on what that capability chart looks like. If you're not number one or number two, uh, I would be surprised, and that should speak volumes. And I, you know, look, we welcome competition, and these are all credible competitors, uh, but you know, we, it's not like we just learned about AI because of OpenAI. We had a lot of OpenAI capability before with OpenAI and after, even at Ignite. Think about this. With OpenAI, we have the leading LLM or the large model, and we have the leading small model with Phi, which we announced the 2.0. So it just speaks to, I think, the breadth. And by the way, we have all the open source models on Azure as well, uh, from Mistral to Llama, and we love it. And we have the best tooling the best data architecture around AI, and then the best products with Copilot and GitHub Copilot. So I, I, I don't feel that, you know, we, if anything, we are much more resolute in our sort of roadmap and pushing forward on the innovation. And I feel like, hey, look, I, a lot of people, there's a lot of talk that there are very few people with real products with at scale innovating on behalf of our customers. You mentioned governance before. It seems to me that it's likely that you come out of this situation as Microsoft 
with more leverage in the open AI relationship one way or another than you had Friday morning, okay? Because your relationship with Sam Altman remains close and it seems like Sam is either going back there with more control or coming to Microsoft and that gives you an amount of leverage. Am I reading that wrong? Yeah, look, John, I don't think of this as leverage. I mean, the, the reality I think is the world is recognizing how deeply partnered we were with OpenAI and SAM and all of the dependency OpenAI has on Microsoft to do our world's you know, world-class work around it, right? We do the kernel optimizations underneath, we do the infrastructure, we build tools around it, we build products around it. So I feel like, hey, look, we had a fantastic partnership on Friday, and we have a fantastic partnership today. And if things change in the open AI side in terms of who is there or who is not there, as, as I said, we will have a fantastic home for the people uh, who want to continue to do the same work with the same mission at Microsoft. Well, Satya, I'm not sure what this initial rift between Sam and the board was about. Maybe you know better than I do. Feel free to, to tell us uh, and the viewers if you, if you want to expound on that. But either way, it seems like there is a segment of people who were concerned about the development of AI being driven by profit. And that's the reason why OpenAI and its board were structured the way they were to begin with. If the governance changes and Microsoft continues to have this relationship, what assurance can you give people who are concerned about this that the development of AI won't purely be driven by profit? Yeah, I mean, look, for, for, I think about this, this is an interesting question, John. I've always sort of subscribed to, you know, that, you know, the idea that the social contract of a corporation is to drive profitable solutions to the challenges of people and planet. And so to when I think about the license for, to operate for Microsoft, yes, of course, we have to generate profit. But at the end of the day, we have to create solutions that are useful and are real solutions to challenges of people and planet. So this is not about profit for profit's sake, but it's about driving profit by doing work that the society needs. That's how I think we have a license to operate in every community and country uh, that we operate in. And so that's what we will continue to pursue. And then of course the open AI, it's a different structure with the nonprofit and we respect that. The other thing that they really care about is safety. That was very clear even the day when Sam and I got together originally with the open AI partnership, we care about it. When we talk about trust in technology, we want to make sure that we are dealing with not only the, the benefits of technology, but the unintended consequences of the technology from day one, as opposed to waiting for uh, things to happen. And so that's some AI safety research for the long term, and even here and now guardrails, uh, whether it's on bias or disinformation or what have you, is something that we are putting a lot of energy into and we'll continue to do so. Well, I know you're taking a lot of Teams calls today, so Satya, I appreciate you taking the time to make this your first media appearance here with me on CNBC. Satya Nadella, CEO of Microsoft. Thank you so much, John. Melissa, back to you. John, thank you. John Fortin, extraordinary interview with Satya Nadella. And do not miss a CNBC special report with John tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern time, right here on CNBC. You'll hear a lot more from Satya Nadella and his thoughts about AI, as well as uh, the interview that we just listened to. Microsoft had an extraordinary amount of market cap added to it today. What you heard from Satya Nadella, are you convinced that that, Microsoft, that market cap sticks, Guy? Not necessarily, no. I mean, we can do it without him. We've been doing great before. We can do it without him. We'd love to have him on the team. I mean, that's not a necessarily a ringing endorsement. But in terms of the stock, it got itself very expensive very quickly. Now they have to, it's very hard to continue to build on the momentum they have, in my opinion. Yeah, great interview. Um, and it just seems like it's still a very fluid situation, right? So as far as the stock's concerned, I think the stock would have been up 1.5% today anyway, or whatever the heck it is. I mean, it just seems like there is just a bid for that. I give you two credit on the other side of the desk. You thought this was going to happen um, into the holiday season or whatever. It just seems like to be a bit of a melt-up, and it's more of the same. And so, uh, you know, Microsoft seems to have a lot of optionality in this whole situation, though. Uh, yeah, I heard Sajid say we're committed to open AI and SAM, mm -hmm. kind of no matter what happens. Right. Um, I, I, you know, again, there's so much fluidity to the situation, and and a you know Microsoft views that they have been here before AI and they're or before open AI, and they'll be here after. So I mean, I I hear, you know, arguably the or one of the most powerful companies in the world um, being very confident on their position now, irregardless, and 
I should say, you know, a case where I think you've got, regardless, by the way, I hated that. (laughs) Um, Whether or not anything changes structurally to move in-house or not, clearly Microsoft has uh, done a very deft job of staying close to to Sam and, and his team and letting them know that he supports them no matter what. Yeah. So I think if Sam goes back to AI Mm -hmm. and it was as if nothing, none of this happened, I think it's probably a little bit worse for Microsoft in that you had a lot of customers fleeing AI to go to Anthropic or wherever because they're unclear of what AI will be. And so I got to think that those customers who are fleeing will go through with that. And so AI is there. Therefore, right. weaker to the extent that Microsoft has some ownership stake in that. I would think that that would be less yeah. valuable. The information is reported that uh, more than 100 customers have contacted Anthropic. They've contact, contacted Cohere to bring their business to those startups as opposed to OpenAI. And then, of course, there's the underlying threat of talent that just going to hit the bid when it comes to offers. Because, you know what, we don't know what's going on mm-hmm. here at OpenAI. And I'm going to go to Salesforce because he's going to match my salary and stock compensation guy. Bidding war for talent. Karen started the show talking about that. It's, it's fascinating. It's now, it seems as though we were in a position last year where the only panic we saw was to the upside. It feels as if the panic we're seeing now in terms of a lot of these stocks is to the upside. People are tripping over themselves to get in. The question is, you know, what's going to be the catalyst to stop that? And maybe this is sort of the bell ringing that we've been waiting for. Yeah. So, uh, you know, another really important point, and you just made it, is enterprises like certainty, right? And, so, and this is what Karen is kind of saying. So the idea of the, all the uncertainty, listen, the large language models as chat GPT, not important. That's consumer. The enterprise stuff is what's most important. All right. Again, 8 p.m. Eastern time for a special uh, report with John Fort, Satya Nadella. Meantime, thanks for watching Fast. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.